Welcome to the Cancer Care Connect workshop. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. During the workshop, you will hear from our panel of expert speakers. We will allow time for questions and comments following the presentation. Instructions will be given at that time. If anyone should require assistance during the workshop, please press star then zero on your touchtone telephone. As a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. I would like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Messner, Senior Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead. Well, thank you so much, Argia, and I too would like to welcome everyone to today's Cancer Care Connect Education Workshop, Progress in the Treatment of Myeloproliferative Neoplasms, or MPNs. And this is part one of Living with Myeloproliferative Neoplasms, MPNs. And today's program is supported by GlaxoSmithKline and an educational grant from Morphosis US, Inc. I really want to thank them for their support of this program today. Now, uh, before I introduce the speakers, I would just like to acknowledge that we have over 150 participants on the call today. And you come primarily from the United States, um, f uh, from uh, both urban, suburban, rural, and frontier communities. And we also have a number of international participants from Australia, Bahrain, India, and the United Kingdom. So it's a global call as well. And it's a credit to each of you that you've chosen to spend this next hour with us. And now it's my pleasure to introduce our first speaker. And our first speaker is Dr. Prith Viraj Bose. And Dr. Bose is Professor, Department of Leukemia, University of Texas, MD Anderson Cancer Center. Dr. Bose will be addressing an overview of myeloproliferative He'll be addressing an overview of myelofibrosis, polycythemia vera, and essential thrombocythemia, including staging and diagnosing, current standard of care and new treatment approaches, understanding common symptoms, working with your healthcare team to manage your symptoms, and the important role of clinical trials, how research increases your treatment options. It's really my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Bose. Thank you, Dr. Messner, and thank you to all our listeners uh, for having me today. Um, uh, I uh, focus uh, on MPNs uh, at MD Anderson in the leukemia department. I'm a hematologist. Um, so uh, I'll start with sort of an overview um, uh, and try to give a high-level uh, description of, of the classic MPNs, myelofibrosis, polycythemia vera, and essential thrombocythemia. So these are all technically cancers. Sometimes that is not entirely clear, but uh, and in, in fact, historically, there's been um, a, a notion sometimes that you know uh, that that these are perhaps on the cusp of benign and malignant. But um, in the um, uh, true sense of the term, they are uh, neoplasms, which which, uh, you know, they used to be earlier called disorders, myeloproliferative disorders, but that was changed deliberately to neoplasm because they are all uh, actually malignancies. They all do have a potential uh, to progress, uh, sometimes turn into acute leukemia, and uh, they all originate in stem cells in the bone marrow that acquire uh, a driver mutation, so a mutation in a gene that that uh, usually overactivates that gene and leads to what we call constitutive signaling or or a continuous uh, overactivated state 
Uh, and as many of our listeners are likely to be familiar, um, these are typically JAK2, uh, Cal Reticulin or CalR, and MIPL, uh, or uh, uh, the thrombopoietin receptor, MPL. Um, so these three are the typical driver mutations accounting for the vast majority of cases. There are a few where we still are searching for a driver, but in those patients too, for the most part, one will find mutations in other genes that establish what we call clonality. So again, I, I realize I'm using a lot of um, technical terms here, but essentially what I'm trying to say is that this is, uh, it, 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 they, they all are um, diseases which are driven by the multiplication of an abnormal clone of cells which arises uh, from a stem cell that acquires uh, uh, this, this driver mutation. So ultimately the result is that you have excessive production of uh, one or more cell lines. Uh, and again, that's a little bit different uh, in the different uh, uh, entities. You know, in ET, it's primarily platelets. In PV, it's actually all three, red cells, platelets, and white cells. In myelofibrosis, which, um, as the name suggests, is accompanied by bone marrow fibrosis or scarring, uh, you get uh, actually both elevated counts and low counts. Uh, so in myelofibrosis, a little bit different from PV and ET, where typically you would not have low blood counts. In myelofibrosis, you can absolutely have low blood counts, particularly anemia or low hemoglobin, especially as the disease progresses and true also of platelets, although the disease may start out with higher counts. Um, so again, the, uh, the, the three are very much related. They are um, all characterized by activation of a biologic pathway we call JAK-STAT. So regardless of the mutations that I talked about, uh, there is activation of this signaling pathway within the cells called JAK-STAT. And this is actually why the JAK inhibitor class of drugs work regardless of the mutation status, because all patients with MPNs, classic MPNs, have overactive JAK-STAT pathway signaling. Um, so that is certainly a biologic unifier between these entities. But clearly, the diseases uh, are clinically uh, certainly different. Uh, the diagnosis always uh, requires a bone marrow. Um, uh, you know, this, I think this is important to, uh, to emphasize because uh, in PV and ET, sometimes the diagnosis is made from the peripheral blood, which can work in, in many situations, but sometimes uh, can, can lead to a misleading uh, uh, conclusion. Uh, so I would certainly advocate for getting the bone marrow biopsy whenever any of these disorders is, is suspected. Um, we don't really stage the disorder, these, these, these diseases, but um, more than staging, what we do is we do risk stratification. So uh, you don't have a stage 1, 2, 3, 4 like you have in solid tumors, but we uh, definitely risk stratify. Now, in uh, ET and PV, the natural history is favorable in terms of survival. Uh, these are chronic, somewhat indolent MPNs. Myelofibrosis, however, is more aggressive. And therefore, the um, uh, risk stratification is more applicable to myelofibrosis 
where we are looking at a, a slew of different prognostic models which uh, attempt to uh, um, uh, risk stratify patients in terms of their survival uh, 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 prediction and uh, very importantly uh, thereby inform the decision for a stem cell transplant because that is the only known cure of myelofibrosis and it's important to know who to uh, send in that direction and who uh, may not need it uh, for uh, uh, quite some time. Uh, in PVNET, the risk stratification to date is, has more to do with, uh, with thrombotic risk stratification. Uh, in, the, in all these uh, conditions, blood clots or thromboses are an important complication and particularly so in PVNET. Uh, and um, because of that, uh, we have certain models that um, uh, risk stratify patients using different factors uh, for, uh, for their risk of developing a blood clot. Now, the, regarding standard of care, uh, I mean, uh, this is, uh, we, we, I can certainly speak to the standard of care, but it is absolutely evolving, and this ties into the uh, uh, importance of clinical trials uh, and where the field uh, is, is, is headed. So um, uh, PV and ET realized that because of their relatively favorable survival, the focus of current standard of care is uh, very much on preventing blood clots. And so like I said, there are ways of risk stratifying patients according to their risk of ha developing a blood clot, and the, uh, the, the strategies we use uh, uh, are essentially directed at minimizing or reducing the risk of blood clots. So put very simply, although this is a great oversimplification, uh, in lower risk PV and ET, oftentimes aspirin and phlebotomy, particularly in PV, uh, is, is sufficient. Whereas in the higher risk patients, uh, again, higher risk from a thrombotic uh, standpoint, uh, one uses cytoreductive uh, drugs such as hydroxyurea, interferon, and ruxolitinib. Now, uh, myelofibrosis, of course, is characterized by a um, significantly shorter survival. It is the most aggressive of the classic MPNs. And here I already alluded to the role of transplant, uh, but the mainstay of treatment is JAK inhibition. Uh, we have four JAK inhibitors on the, uh, on the market right now, and we really, um, uh, it, it's difficult, of course, to go into each of them uh, uh, in any detail right now. But what these drugs do best is, is, uh, uh, is, is control uh, splenomegaly, so enlarged spleen, uh, and, and symptoms. Um, these uh, diseases are characterized uh, to, to, to varying extents uh, by a lot of different symptoms. So night sweats, uh, weight loss, fevers, itching, bone pain, um, spleen-related issues, fatigue, uh, and, and many others. Um, so JAK inhibitors do a good job in terms of uh, uh, shrinking the spleen and uh, uh, helping with symptoms. Uh, again, there are four drugs approved. Uh, there is ruxolitinib, that was the first one, that, is, that has actually been shown to have a survival benefit uh, in, uh, in, in myelofibrosis. We have the longest follow-up uh, with that drug, of course. But uh, all four uh, do have similar actions in, uh, in terms of how they work and, and what they do well. But there are some nuances 
For example, momelotinib was recently approved for uh, patients who have anemia. So, um, so that, that's a good example of uh, you know a drug that is is different in the sense that it is a JAK inhibitor like ruxolitinib. Uh, and does those same things, but also improves anemia, whereas ruxolitinib generally worsens uh, anemia. Uh, there are other nuances. For example, fedratinib and pecritinib are primarily inhibitors of JAK2 and not so much JAK1. This might have some implications for uh, um, Im Im immunosuppression. Many of us believe that uh, JAK1 uh, inhibition leads to immunosuppression. So uh, theoretically, and it's really important to emphasize the word theoretically, uh, it is, it's possible that if you only inhibit JAK2 and not JAK1, uh, you, uh, you, you may have uh, certain advantages in certain situations. Um, uh, for example, uh, you know, skin cancers, uh, infections can be seen with ruxolitinib. There are some situations where uh, one may want to uh, use a drug that uh, inhibits JAK1 uh, less uh, and primarily JAK2. So there are many nuances. Again, you know, pecritinib, for example, is a is, is one that is a JAK inhibitor that does not lower blood counts and it's particularly suited for patients who have what is known as the cytopenic phenotype of uh, of myelofibrosis. Um, uh, it also has uh, somewhat of an anemia benefit, but is best known for uh, its efficacy in people with very low uh, platelets in particular, uh, which is a difficult area because ruxolitinib and fedratinib uh, actually do not uh, have data or have not been tested in people with a very low platelets defined as less than uh, 50. Um, so again, lots of different uh, nuances, but generally this class of drugs is best known for spleen and symptom benefits. Ruxolitinib has a survival benefit. The others might as well. We just don't know that as well because it uh, because they haven't necessarily had uh, uh, the uh, uh, the appropriately designed studies or uh, uh, sufficient uh, follow up. Um, new treatment approaches. There are many, uh, and again, uh, uh, I know I've been talking about myelofibrosis. That's where uh, the vast majority of the action is uh, in terms of uh, drug development and new trials. Uh, and uh, uh, again, myelofibrosis is uh, unfortunately the one with the worst prognosis and therefore uh, perhaps the greatest area of unmet medical need. There's a lot of non-JAK inhibitors being looked at, many, many in combination with ruxolitinib. It is possible that the treatment paradigm will change and we will start to use combination approaches in myelofibrosis from the get-go, which we do not do at this time. Uh, it is also possible that we will bring in some of those uh, non-JAK inhibitor agents in sequential fashion uh, as an add-on. So all that remains to be seen. Now, important to note, though, that remember I said that for PV and ET, our current paradigm focuses on reducing the risk of clotting. Uh, however, these diseases can turn into myelofibrosis and, worse, into acute myeloid leukemia. Uh, so, until now, we've really lacked uh, any um, uh, proven options uh, um, to, to modify that uh, course, uh, of that natural course of the disease. Similar considerations apply to myelofibrosis, where there is a search for so-called disease-modifying agents, which do not just uh, 
provide relief of certain manifestations or improve certain manifestations, but also uh, uh, really uh, impact the underlying course and biology. So in PVNET, there is a lot of interest these days in interferons, and uh, you know it remains to be seen um, uh, whether they will fully deliver on their promise, but there's certainly a lot of interest uh, in interferons for, for PVNET. Ruxolitinib, the JAK1, JAK2 inhibitor, uh, which has been the cornerstone for myelofibrosis, also has a role in PV. Um, and uh, we're starting to explore these uh, possible disease-modifying effects of drugs. And I think the whole approach, the paradigm, is shifting towards not just addressing the immediate needs and the immediate risks, but also uh, to, uh, to modify the uh, underlying uh, biology. And that is why, obviously, clinical trials are of paramount importance. There's always a lot of innovation going on, um, uh, numerous uh, different mechanisms in myelofibrosis. In PV, there is a class of drugs now that, uh, that mimics the action of hepcidin or, or increases the body's own hepcidin. That's just one example of yet another approach uh, that people are looking at. And so certainly clinical trials uh, remain, just like in any other cancer, uh, extremely uh, relevant and important to seek out. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Post. That was an outstanding presentation and really stellar. And you really set the stage for today's program. I know there'll be questions for you during the Q&A, but just a very impressive and very um, informative presentation for all of our participants. Thank you so much. And our, our next speaker is uh, Dr. Christina Gowan. And Dr. Gowan is Associate Professor of Medicine, Division of Hematology and Oncology, Division D Program Director, Hematology Oncology Fellowship Program, Fellowship Di Founding Director, Integrative Medicine in Hematology Oncology, Fellowship University of Arizona, University of Arizona College of Medicine, Tucson, Arizona. And Dr. Gowan will be addressing strategies to reduce potential complications of MPN, communicating with your healthcare team about staging and progression, talking with your doctor about what symptoms should prompt you or your caregiver to call the office, integrative medicine, quality of life concerns, quality of life and concerns about life expectancy, guidelines to prepare for telehealth, telemedicine appointments, including technology, prepared list of questions, adherence, and discussion of open notes. It's my pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Gowan. Oh, thank you so much, Carolyn, for that very kind introduction. And a big thank you to Cancer Care Network for all you do for our NPN community and our patients and caregivers. We appreciate all of your efforts, and you provide such a valuable service. And I, too, want to honor and congratulate all of the participants for today's call because it truly takes time out of your day to sit down and advocate and learn for yourself or your loved ones. So kudos for your hard work and really, again, advocating for yourself. Uh, today I'd like to really structure our time together sort of as a frequently questions. And so as Carolyn had mentioned, we're really going to dive into some very important questions and how you can navigate this space of being an MPN patient or caregiver. So that first question is, what are some strategies to reduce potential complications of myeloproliferative neoplasms? 
And I like to look at complications as either disease-related or therapy-related. And so some potential disease complications, as Dr. Bose really eloquently outlined, is it's really heterogeneous. There's a lot of different symptoms and, and complications associated with NPMs. But the most dreaded is truly the venous thromboembolism or blood clots and other vascular abnormalities, or certainly progression to more advanced disease forms such as myelofibrosis or acute myeloid leukemia if you have PV or ET. There's also therapy-related complications, such as low blood counts, weight gain, infectious complications, amongst many other complications, depending on the therapeutic that's truly being used. And I really want to highlight that the first and paramount strategy is truly to maintain compliance with your treatment protocols. So taking your medications as directed, following up with your medical appointments as recommended is truly the most important way that you can uh, reduce the potential complications of NPN. Another really important strategy is to be proactive in your health and wellness. An aspect of myeloproliferative neoplasms is not only controlling your blood counts and controlling your symptoms, but also controlling cardiovascular risk factors. And to do that, it's really through lifestyle medicine. So adherence to lifestyle maneuvers such as nutrition, exercise that reduce cardiovascular risk are really one of the most potent and effective strategies to reduce potential complications of NPN. Question number two, how do I communicate best with the healthcare team about risk stratification? Again, this was mentioned with Dr. Bo's excellent presentation, but NPNs are very different. They are unlike our solid tumor counterparts where we stage disease from one, two, three, and four. It's truly risk stratification. And so it's very important to understand where are you on the spectrum of risk? Are you high risk? Are you low risk? Because this is very important as it dictates how we look at your disease and what kind of therapeutic recommendations we make as your provider. It should be noted that risk stratification is truly different for those with essential thrombocythemia versus polycythemia vera and certainly with myelofibrosis. So I'd like to fuel you with some questions that you can consider asking your hematology provider or team the next time you see them in clinic. You can ask them, how is my disease classified currently? What features of my disease are helping you to make this determination? And we use many different clinical features such as your age, history of blood clots, your blood counts, your symptoms, and presence of high-risk mutations or cytogenetic changes, which we see on your bone marrow. So I would encourage you to be informed, to ask these very important questions and understand where you lie in your risk stratification. And then to keep notes, keep notes of this conversation and keep copies of your bone marrow biopsies and truly consider even Excel spreadsheets to help you track your symptoms and your blood counts. Moving on to what symptoms should prompt you or your caregiver to call the office or notify your team. Something unique to NPNs is the importance of symptoms to the management of your disease. We as your physicians are exquisitely interested in not only what your blood counts say, 
but also how you feel. And this is this whole concept of MPN symptom burden. MPN symptom burden can be measured. This is a validated measure. It's not something that's esoteric. It's truly concrete. It's a tool that's widely available, and it's accessible on the web. You can Google this even, MPN Total Symptom Score 10, or MPN Symptom Assessment Form. I encourage you to do that and, and to really know where your symptom burden lies, what is your score at baseline, and what is most important is not your absolute score, but how is it changing over time. And so I would encourage you and empower you to know your MPN symptom burden and then to do it quarterly with your provider. And even again, keeping a spreadsheet of your, of your score can really be beneficial as it can alert you to changes not only um, in your blood counts, um, Again, it may be a spreadsheet keeping your blood counts on there, but your total symptom score, and it can really suggest if your disease is changing or modifying over time. Because remember, MPNs are truly a dynamic disease process. And one disease form may actually progress to more advanced forms over time. So again, if you have ET or PV, it could progress to secondary myelofibrosis or even acute myeloid leukemia. So being an advocate for yourself and aware of these changes in blood counts and your symptoms and then communicating these changes to your healthcare team are truly essential as they may dictate the need for further testing such as perhaps a repeat bone marrow biopsy or even a change in your therapy. Other critical reasons to reach out to your healthcare team include things that would be indicative of a blood clot, so redness, pain in the extremity, certainly chest pain, shortness of breath, or again, if you are diagnosed with a blood clot, maybe you're seen in another treatment facility and diagnosed with a blood clot, a heart attack or stroke, these are very severe events, clearly, but they must immediately be com communicated to your MPN treatment team. Because again, this can dictate a change in your therapy. Other signs and symptoms that are concerning to us as your hematologists are bleeding events, bruising events, significant weight changes or changes in your energy level. Really, any major change in your health, we as your MPN treatment team really want to know. We want to know how you feel, and we want to know if there are significant events that are occurring. Uh, that may dictate a change in your therapy. I'm a hematologist, but I'm also an integrative oncologist, and so I'm very passionate about integrative medicine. And I truly believe that integrative medicine has the ability to truly optimize your treatment outcomes and potentially your quality of life. So I'd like to spend just a moment to define what is integrative medicine. And it's truly a patient-centered, evidence-informed field of cancer care that utilizes mind and body practices, natural products, and our lifestyle modifications from different traditions alongside conventional cancer treatments. And that's truly what makes it different than complementary or alternative medicine. It's alongside our conventional cancer care. Integrative oncology aims to optimize your health, your quality of life, and clinical outcomes across the cancer care continuum, and to truly empower you to prevent 
and become active participants before, during, and beyond cancer treatment. And so through the use of lifestyle medicine, such as nutrition, exercise, uh, just a reminder of how important that cardiovascular health is, um, and patient-centered supportive care strategies, your outcomes and quality of life may truly be optimized. Although we don't really have the time to dig into all the potential avenues of integrative medicine in the scope of our conference today, I generally recommend for patients to adhere to a Mediterranean-based diet that's rich in vegetables, fruit, cold water fish, such as salmon, that's rich in omega-3 fatty acids, and olive oil. Uh, there's an interesting study, the Nutrient Trial out of UC Irvine with Dr. Fleischman, uh, looking at uh, certainly the uh, adherence to this, but I, it, I think we will see over time how it's truly modulating inflammation and may improve outcomes. Um, more to come on that. Recommendation is clearly to get frequent and balanced exercise, to optimize your sleep, to have strategies for stress reduction, and importantly, for finding uh, joy and laughter. All of this works together to really promote your health and wellness. Okay, now we're moving to how do I best prepare for telehealth or telemedicine appointments? Well, I think we see through COVID-19 that our delivery system of healthcare really has changed. And now, as we're experiencing in present moment, we live in a virtual world. And many services, both within conventional medicine and integrative medicine, are now truly being offered via telemedicine. So one strategy to truly maximize this time is to be prepared, to come again with knowledge about your MPN symptom burden, perhaps even with your most recent MPN TSS 10 score, and know how this relates to your prior visits. Know your blood counts, where they were last time, and, and be prepared to ask if there's any changes that your provider would like to highlight. And certainly write down any questions that you have so you're prepared and ready to get those answered. Remember to take notes so you have these to refer to next time you see your provider. And Really, this preparation can lead and come to great strides together as you work together as a team in managing your MPNs. So I think at this point we'll have some more time together to do a question and answer session, but I want to thank everyone um, who's on the call today as well as the cancer care team and Dr. Mesmer uh, for the opportunity to participate. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Gowan. That was really an outstanding presentation. Stellar, lots of wonderful information. Um, I know there'll be questions for you during the Q&A as well. Um, and um, before um, we move on to the Q&A, I'm just going to uh, um, I'm just going to mention a few um, of the uh, services that Cancer Care provides. So Cancer Care is a national nonprofit organization, and it provides free um, psychosocial services to people living with cancer. So what does that mean? So we offer practical and financial assistance, and many people call our Hope Line at 1-800-813-4673, or visit our website at www.cancercare.org. 
Um, so the, our hope line is answered by our oncology social workers. They take turns answering the phone, so there's no queue to wait to, for someone to pick up the phone. Um, we also do offer um, support and support groups, online support groups, and those are for all different types of uh, cancers, including uh, myeloproliferative neoplasms, as well as all ages and caregivers. So um, it really runs the gap, young adults as well. Um, we also, of course, offer these, these programs, these educational workshops, about 80 a year. Um, and we do have a number of publications, and um, we do have fact sheets. And we have these coping circles that we offer. So it's a thumbnail sketch of all the different services that we do offer at Cancer Care. And now we have time for questions. I'm going to ask Regina to um, bring all of our speakers on board. And we're going to take as many of your questions as possible. Regina? Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, at this time, we'll take questions from the web only. You may submit questions by clicking Ask a Question. So this will be for Dr. Bose. How does treatment differ by subtype if diagnosed? Is biomarker testing appropriate? Um, I would say, uh, you know, as I alluded to earlier, treatments are quite different between, say, MF on the one hand and PV and ET on the other. Uh, in the sense that in PV and ET, even though things are evolving, like I was trying to explain, um, the uh, primary focus remains on preventing thrombosis. Uh, whereas in MF, uh, you know, we have to consider the shortened survival in this disease, as well as sometimes anemia, sometimes, uh, you know, significant symptoms, uh, enlarged spleen. So there are more, I think, um, therapeutic considerations in myelofibrosis than uh, in PVNET. So definitely the subtype does affect uh, the way we approach things, um, uh, of course, again, now there is increased focus on disease modification, which applies to all three, uh, but again, more to myelofibrosis because we know uh, that's a more, uh, that's a more aggressive uh, 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 you know, form of MPN. I'm sorry, what was the other question? So if diagnosed, is biomarker testing appropriate? Yeah, of course. So the driver mutation should always be checked for. Uh, um, you know, granted, all patients have uh, activation of the JAK-STAT pathway and JAK inhibitors should help all patients, uh, uh, you know, to varying degrees. But still, I think it's really important to know the driver mutation because, for example, JAK2 is the one that causes the most clotting. So the clotting risks are much higher in ET, for example, which has a JAK2 mutation than in ET, which has, uh, for example, a CalR mutation. So right there, there is a big difference uh, uh, that is uh, really uh, conferred by the, by the driver mutation status. So that is, it is important to know, um, and then for certain clinical trials, it's important to know. Now, and, uh, nowadays, uh, we are making a foray. This is really, uh, uh, um, you know, a new thing on the horizon, but uh, uh, it's already, you know, starting to enter the clinic, you know, uh, uh, specific therapies against mutated CALAR or mutated JAK2. Uh, this is sort of the next frontier, you know. So I think it's very important to know the driver mutation for multiple reasons. 
Excellent. Thank you so much. And a question for Dr. Gowan. Um, can MPNs develop as a result of a different blood cancer? Thank you for that question. And so in general, we think of the MPNs to be really isolated in their own group. And so we call them the Philadelphia negative or classical MPNs. And so they're really all, they're all in their own group. When we see a new patient in clinic, we, we first and be, look to see if they have what's called a Philadelphia mutation, so we can rule out CML. And then that, if that's ruled out, then we have the group which is ET, PV, and MF, as well as some other outliers. So in general, they're, they're really their own unique, what we call myeloid malignancy. Excellent. Thank you so much. Thank you. Um, so this uh, question for Dr. Bose, are MPNs chronic? What does living with disease look like? Well, uh, I think Dr. Gawain uh, very eloquently was um, uh, summarizing some of the realities of uh, living with an MPN. Obviously, it is challenging uh, with any chronic disease that uh, has a symptom-predominant presentation, right? So uh, all the MPNs, particularly MS, but also PV and ET, for example, are characterized by a significant degree of fatigue. Uh, and then you can have other things... Uh, like, uh, you know, spleen-related early satiety or abdominal discomfort, night sweats, uh, itching, bone pain, weight loss, occasionally fevers, uh, trouble concentrating, and, uh, you know, there's just um, a, a quite a large uh, uh, gamut of symptoms that patients can have. And again, as Dr. Gawin alluded to, uh, you know, there is a nice tool, uh, thanks to uh, our uh, colleagues Ruben Mesa and Robin Sherber uh, that, um, you know, has been developed and is widely used. In fact, in clinical trials, they're routinely used, but they should be used in clinical practice as well, ideally. And these would be the things like the MPN10 questionnaire, uh, the symptom assessment form. There's a few uh, iterations of it. Uh, there's one for MF. There's one for MPNs as a whole. So I think, you know, the, the symptoms are very real. Uh, they need to be captured and followed over time. The JAK inhibitors are probably the best class of drugs to date for symptoms. However, they don't improve everything. For example, I don't think fatigue is improved well by any uh, pharma pharmacologic uh, intervention. And that is perhaps where some of the things Dr. Gavin was talking about, like yoga and certain diets, etc., might play a role. Excellent. Thank you. Thanks. And Dr. Cowan, do you want to add anything? Do you want to? No, I think it really well said, Dr. Bose, and I think what really should be appreciated is that no MPN journey is the same. Every patient has a different symptom constellation, and it's different even between ET, PV, and MF. And so the key is to really know what your symptom burden is and to really leave no stone unturned, meaning that even things such as sexual health, psychosocial health, sleep disruptions, all of these things may actually tie back into your myeloproliferative neoplasm. And so we need to know that as we're, we're helping you to navigate this path is we want to help you in your quality of life. And, and we need to know the different things that you're experiencing. And so 
it's very easy when you're seeing a physician to minimize some of these um, more esoteric symptoms that you think perhaps are not related to your blood cancer. But in fact, and we're finding more and more, that NPNs are associated with a very diverse and heterogeneous symptom complex. So really know where you are and how it's changing. And again, I'd like to add the potential power to modulate things that are very difficult with routine pharmacologic medications like fatigue. Right? And so we, we did look at yoga, as Dr. Bose had mentioned as well. And that actually, even with uh, 10 minutes of yoga over a week, which wasn't much yoga <laughs> at all, but actually did modulate some of the symptom burden as well as decrease the inflammatory cytokines associated with it. So it can be truly powerful. And any time that we're looking at therapeutics, we're balancing the risks versus the benefits. And when you're looking at things like Mediterranean diet, meditation, yoga, these things have very low risk associated with a very high potential for benefit. So why not give those things a try? Excellent. Thank you. And um, Dr. Bose, um, does treatment vary based on age? Are MPNs more common in older people? Well, uh, they are uh, to the extent that uh, the, I think the median age of diagnosis, uh, for example, for PV, which is the most common MPN, is in the 60s. However, you know, I certainly do see a wide age range. Uh, um, and many patients with ET, for example, are, are quite young. Uh, and uh, so I think overall, yes. Uh, it is uh, more a disease of, of older people as, as frankly most malignancies are. But I think there is absolutely, there are a lot of patients who are quite young, um, you know, 40s, 50s, uh, diagnosed with uh, any of these. Um, and something I didn't talk about earlier is prefibrotic primary myelofibrosis. This is an entity that is increasingly being, being seen. Uh, I don't think it's occurring any more than it used to, but I think it's being recognized more because earlier these patients were felt to have ET. But now our pathologists, you know, know better and, and the classification has evolved and they are, they are recognizing prefibrotic primary myelofibrosis uh, more and more. Um, and this is a prognostically a, a distinct entity from ET, again, not to go into it too much. But uh, I, I think, you know, overall, yes, older uh, people more than younger, but we still see a large number of young patients. Thank you so much. And the question for Dr. Gowan, how can being diagnosed with an MPN affect pregnancy? Yeah, really important question because we are seeing MPNs form in younger women, right? And so these women clearly still want to have a family, and we have to be considering family planning during this time. And so for pregnant women, there are therapy options. Uh, we typically use the interferons in this patient population. It, it is safe in pregnancy. And we also certainly worry about peri-delivery uh, uh, thrombotic complications or blood clots around pregnancy. So these are important conversations to be had with the, the hematology team, but do know there are good options to have good, healthy, and happy uh, deliveries with NPNs. Excellent. Thank you. Excellent.
important question, and thanks for answering it. Um, um, and um, so the question for Dr. Pelos, I was recently diagnosed with ET, and I'm curious if I should stick with my local care team, or should I start looking for specialized cancer centers near me? So it really obviously varies, uh, you know, according to each individual uh, patient situation and, and case. But I think because these are rare conditions, uh, you know, the prevalence of ET is uh, around 50 per 100,000 U.S. population. Uh, the prevalence of myelofibrosis is about five, uh, and about and for PV is also around 50. Uh, so these are rare conditions, and I think one is uh, always uh, better off uh, at least seeking um, some input initially perhaps from uh, an expert uh, in these rare conditions because, uh, again, if you, um, you know, with any rare disease, I think it's true that the more patients you see, the more experience you have, the more you understand the nuances. Uh, you know, for example, uh, is it really ET? Uh, you know, have we excluded prefibrotic primary myelofibrosis? Um, uh, is uh, do we want to simply focus on uh, on uh, you know preventing a blood clot, or should we also is the patient also interested in perhaps trying uh, something new, something cutting edge for uh, a potential disease modification? You know, long term. Uh, um, uh, you know, uh, outcome improvement. So there are all these questions. You know, so I, I think I would, I would uh, advocate for, uh, you know, perhaps going to a going to a center with with trials, a more of a established MPN program. Um, uh, obviously, no offense to the local provider, but these are rare conditions. Excellent points. Thank you so much, Dr. Bose. That's a really very important. It comes up in many of our calls and. Um, it's it's really important to see people who've seen large volumes of, of, of people with um, rare cancers, even with a common cancer sometimes. It's just um, really good to... Um, I guess we should explain to everyone um, about the... Um, if not the Gowan, if you could do this, the, um, the comprehensive, the NCI-designated comprehensive cancer centers, if you could say a word about those. So NCI-designated comprehensive cancer centers are really the, the gold standard for academic cancer centers. That means that there are robust uh, translational researchers and, and uh, supportive facilities to engage in robust research and clinical trials. And uh, there's a series of uh, different criteria mechanisms to really uphold them to the highest standards of both cancer care delivery as well as research. So for those that are really looking for those academic centers with the, the most, that are most likely to have high impact clinical trials, looking for NCI designated cancer centers is a really great way to go. And I, I would like to also echo the importance, I believe, of getting that academic opinion because it's so critical at the beginning of diagnosis to really get that diagnosis correct. Because as you're moving through that NPN treatment journey, knowing where you are on that treatment spectrum is so critically important to know how we treat you as well as what kinds of things we need to be looking out for for the future. And so, 
Yes, NCI designated cancer centers are wonderful resources and a great place to get that first academic opinion. And they they also work with local physicians as well, don't they? Do they have a kind of they can consult or talk to each other as well? Absolutely, absolutely. And I would say that that's that's a very common kind of strategy. Is that uh, they work together, the academic physicians with a community physician, and potentially at diagnosis, and uh, even even once a year could be a potential really beautiful partnership. And it's really dependent on that community physician and academic physician, how they want to work together. But that's a very common model, is to work together to really ensure that the patient's getting the best of both worlds. And the question for Dr. Bose, um, who can I anticipate being part of my care team if I am diagnosed with MPN? Um, well, um, I think, uh, you know, certainly uh, the hematologist, but also uh, I think the PCP, uh, you know, there could be um, uh, a role for, I think uh, Dr. Gawin was alluding to this, uh, you know, like integrative uh, medicine, uh, because I think, uh, you know, having an anti, uh, anti-inflammatory diet, exercise, all these things are uh, very important and perhaps underappreciated sometimes. Uh, so I, I would think, you know, nutrition, uh, again, integrative medicine, your PCP, and, and of course, your hematologist. Excellent. Thank you. That's wonderful. And people should really be sure that they have a, a team working with them. That's really great. And um, I'm going to now um, uh, ask our speakers to provide a takeaway for today's program. So I'm going to start with Dr. Bose, if you'd like to give a takeaway for today's program. Just a minute, like a minute or two takeaway of what you'd like people to take away from what they learned today. Well, you know, certainly I, I've enjoyed being a part of this. I think it's very, very important to try and uh, break it down to our patients and uh, uh, their caregivers, uh, you know, all stakeholders in this uh, in this arena, um, you, you know what uh, what the diseases are biologically and uh, you know how they behave, what 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 that means uh, for for both prognosis and quality of life, and then of course you know uh, not just current standard of care but also what's uh, coming down the pike. So uh, I, hopefully you know we've been able to. Uh, convey uh, some of these, and I'm sure there'll be a, lo a lot more questions. But these are always, uh, uh, you know, very uh, uh, enjoyable to do, and I hope, uh, uh, and I hope our advice was was helpful. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Bose. It's I, I believe it certainly was from the response we're getting from people. So thank you very much. Thank you, and um, Dr. Cowan. Yeah, I think it's a really exciting time for myeloproliferative neoplasm patients that we're really getting an explosion of new therapeutics in the pipeline. So, you know, what used to be a very limited armamentarium of therapeutics now is becoming very rich and dynamic and not only modulating the blood counts and symptoms, but really getting at disease modification and impacting long-term outcomes. So, again, I think it's truly exciting. 
Uh, I'd like to leave with the thoughts of empowerment, empowerment of, of knowing your disease, knowing your risk status, knowing your symptom burden, and knowing that you really have the power to complement your care through lifestyle choices. And um, again, uh, it's an honor to be part of this. It's always wonderful to, to hear from my colleagues and, and to be connecting with patients and caregivers. So thank you again for the opportunity. Oh, thank you so much, and I want to thank our speakers. You've been phenomenal. I want to thank our participants as well. And although we have done a program on this in the past, I have to say this program was probably really fantastic in terms of the presentations, but also the questions were quite excellent as well. And um, so I just want to really um, state that. And I also want to let you know that any information we gave out, you'll be getting a survey monkey evaluation at the end of today's well, actually, it will come a couple of days after the program. But the Survey Monkey will include an evaluation of the program, but also we will be providing you with resources um, that we may have mentioned during the program, like the NCI designated centers will include that. We will include the information about cancer care, how to contact us. And we'll include any other information, even if we didn't mention it, that we think will be useful to you in terms of just um, having resources at your fingertips. So please look out for that SurveyMonkey evaluation. It serves a dual purpose, both to give you some additional information as well as to give you a chance to evaluate the program. But I do want to comment about the fact that um, we were not able to take everyone's question. A lot of people on the call, and of course, we can only take a, a subset of questions. But I want, to, I want to apply this to everybody. For those of you who asked a question, for those of you who have a question yet to ask, and for those of you who um, are in queue to ask a question, I want you to go back to treating healthcare team. They do know you the best. And with the information you've learned today, you may be asking your questions slightly differently of your healthcare team. And um, you also may be um, more, you're more informed, more informed about. Um, and so therefore, your questions will be on a different level. And keep asking your questions as often as you need to. Also, it's very important for you all to know um, who, is, who you can call evenings, weekends, and holidays. Those seem to be the times when things happen. <laughs> People seem to have all these questions about that. And so please do um, check with your healthcare team about who you can call evenings, weekends, and holidays. That's really important. And again, I want to thank you all for your participation today. It's been a terrific group. Our speakers have been terrific, and I want to wish you all a very fine day. Thank you all. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This concludes the workshop, and you may now disconnect. Everyone have a great day.